Hi, I'm Julie Nasralla. I'm an opera singer and radio host, and you're listening to Talking Blues. It's a voice I recognize on the radio. Yes. That's a nice thing. So, I wanted to ask you how you first got into music. I was one of those people for whom music was just a natural choice in life. I remember sitting on the couch with my mother when I was four years old, and we were watching some kind of award show, maybe the Academy Awards, and there were people singing and dancing on the TV, and... Although at four years old, I didn't know I was going to become an opera singer, but I recognized myself in those people. And I remember thinking, I'm one of those people. It resonated so strongly with me um, that I just never really thought about doing anything else. I didn't know about anything else. It was an all-consuming thing. Uh, Later, I got when I was a couple of years older, Um, my father bought me a series of books to teach yourself notes. So I plowed through these books that would teach you the notes on the piano and the notes on the staff and where they all went. And I just absorbed that like it was the most natural thing in the world. So piano was your first instrument? Piano was my first instrument. My parents bought me a piano. I remember the day it was delivered. I had just a little freak attack. I, it was the most excited I had ever been. Kind of like that same feeling of resonance when I was the little kid on the couch watching the, the singing and the dancing on TV. There was this resonance that happened, and the same thing happened with piano. I used to sit at the piano, make up things. I would transcribe by ear um, TV show tunes. Joni Loves Chachi had this really like lovely little ballad, and the uh, the, the song that plays for the young, the restless at the beginning, I would transcribe those by ear, I would write tunes out, and I would plow through piano books and go to the mall every Saturday with my allowance to buy a page of popular music and like rock music. The first, the first piece of music I ever bought um, was Stairway to Heaven. It was the piano version of Stairway to Heaven. And so I started off as a pianist. Uh, I joined a choir when I was Eight years old in public school and joining that choir essentially changed my life. I had the aha moment at eight years old. I know people have it much later, but I, I had it then because the choir teacher I had was an amazing music teacher in a public school. And this is why public school music is so important. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Darwood, Sylvia Darwood, I'm still friends with her today. Oh, she... Um, We all joined, and all the kids joined choir, so we were all in choir. I sang in the alto section. She did a major production of Gilbert and Sullivan every year. I got a lead role, Um, and one night, I guess after I'd gone to bed, she phoned my mom, and she said, your kid has a strong voice. She can carry harmonies, and she's just got it. I really feel that maybe you should send her to have voice lessons and while you're at it they're auditioning for opera parts for children at the National Arts Center there was an opera festival taking place and Mario Bernardi who founded the NAC the National Arts Center Orchestra was conducting and Brian McDonald who's one of the foremost choreographers at the time in the world uh, was directing and here I was this little twerp you have no idea who these people are but I got 
I got into the opera. I got a solo. It was for Benjamin Britten's Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was just, it just took off from there. I just continued playing piano, but I also sang. I was... I just had this love of the fine arts, and for a while I was in, in high school, I was in a, an improv theater where we went around doing performances for other high schools. Uh, and, but after a while, after a time, that gets to be too much, so the piano fell away and the theater fell away, and the singing was the only thing that remained. And as most kids do in high school, you experiment, so I had a band what kind of band? And just a rock pop band. And uh, I'm still friends with those guys today, too. Rob would write the tunes, and Matt was on drums, and I was lead, and we were always looking for a guitarist. And <laughs> it was really, really fun. And I did show tunes, but this whole time, I, I continued taking singing lessons with a woman who lived on the other side of the track of my high school, Mrs. Barbara Ross. And I stayed with her until the day she died. And she taught me how to sing. And she taught me what to do with music, how to express something and how to really get into the meaning and make it my own. And, and no one was more shocked to find out that at the end of the day, the thing I excelled at was classical music. <laughs> so so how, how did you connect with classical music when you were younger? Like when you, when you first started doing this, did you, was there a connection to classical music immediately? No. I mean, my uh, I'm the child of Lebanese immigrants who grew up uh, with, you know, with a, a liberal parents who loved all kinds of good music. I listened to Arabic music when my mom would play her Lebanese tapes in the kitchen while she was cooking on the old ghetto blaster. <laughs> She's chopping the parsley for tabbouleh. And my father uh, played violin for some time. And, and so there are music were musical traces of, of talent. And I have a couple of cousins who have really dynamite voices, really good voices. But no one had ever pursued it. it classical music wasn't anything that was in the house on the regular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just this thing that was introduced to me that I absorbed like a sponge. And um, it was really quite surprising. But I like all kinds of music, too. I always tell people I, it's classical music is what I do, but I'm not a fan. So I consume it differently. But I So when I'm consuming music, I'm actually listening to Van Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Zeppelin and and, and this other part is what I do. Explain that to yeah. me. Well <laughs> like I get so yeah. I get that it's it's your job. It is what people know you as. But so it's not like you listen to classical music on your own time. Well I guess you don't have to because you're basically playing classical music on the radio all the time. But if you went home is classical music ever on? No. <laughs> I think people find that shocking. Well, but, but, but most then again, you're doing four hours of well, classical you, music every day, right? But even before I got the gig at CBC, you know, the gig at CBC is a relatively new thing in my life. It's it's only 10 years old. Right. The rest of my life before that was, you, you're learning, when you're learning operas, or concertos, or anything like that. You're you're listening to the recordings, and this is really a pre-YouTube era. Now I'm dating mm-hmm. myself, where you know you had to go out and buy the recordings, get the score, and I would just love the moment of getting the score, opening up, I, listening to a recording to see how the music goes. Um, but that's how I'm consuming it. I'm not consuming it from a point of view of 
I need to buy every recording of Carmen that ever existed because I just need to, I just need to have it. Like it's, it's, it's the difference between being a collector and a curator, I suppose. I'm just kind of making that up. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, 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 the thing that I have to go home and learn. It's the challenge I choose. It's the, it's the passion I choose. But I'm also passionate about other things when I want to be cooking in the kitchen or when I want to run on the treadmill. 80s pop tunes are fantastic for running on the <laughs> treadmill. You know, they're, they're, if you're a multifaceted person, I think multifaceted choices in music are just normal. Um, and Did plus, you know when you were growing up and you had the band and you were still taking vocal lessons and you were pursuing some classical music, did you know what you wanted to do? Like No. Because I, I would imagine yeah. following the path of a classical musician, a mezzo-soprano, would be not an easy path to, to follow. And I'm not sure how many people guide you and say, this is what you need to do. Did you know, you knew you wanted to be a musician, you wanted to be a singer, but beyond that? I had no idea how it was going to manifest. And I, I really wasn't afraid, and I really didn't care. I remember, I absolutely remember this specific moment in time of being in Mrs. Ross's home after a lesson, the lady who lived over, over the track, and, uh, and thinking to myself, I have no idea how this is all going to translate <laughs> into anything lucrative uh but also did it matter i don't care uh i think money matters i think it matters more as you get older uh you're younger and that's a whole other story that we could get into uh but yeah i mean money you want to make a bit of money but you, you know at 16 and 17 i didn't really i think kids today are much sharper uh i really in a lot of ways was very naive i didn't know how much you know how what a good salary was as a musician um, no idea about how the next steps were supposed to happen. Uh, no one really told me, even as I ventured into university. I've got a couple of music degrees as well. No one said, you know, okay, so now we're going to do this. A lot of people told me to do other things. But no, there, you really have to figure that out for yourself. Was there anybody who... Not you modeled well, after, I did anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's yeah. It's pretty normal. Other like, kids might have had a different experience, but I had. To, I really don't feel like someone said, "Okay, now we're going to do this and we're going to go down this yeah. path." No. And, and the other thing is, yeah. I'm, of all the musicians that I've interviewed, very few have said, "I had a five-year plan and this was." Yeah. No. Well, yeah. Oh God. No. Like, Get yeah. the next gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but was there any musicians that you wanted to be, or was there somebody you wanted to emulate or try to? fashion your career after um no I I really I loved my top three were Luciana Pavarotti Cecilia Bartoli and Maria Callas I adore these people they're artists they sing beautifully they have a way of immediately showing you what's happening emotionally without even you understanding a word of what they're singing. So I had these people that I looked up to and I I want the high notes of Pavarotti. I want the agility of Cecilia and the storytelling ability. And I want the dr- dramatic realism of Maria Callas. Um, but I never wanted to be anybody else. Did you see anybody Canadian that, that you could maybe even talk to saying, how do you pursue this or... 
let's see, there were there was Stuart Hamilton, a famous opera coach who has since passed. I adored him. I loved him. I had a couple of coachings with him. And uh, but he again, he would never give you advice on not to me anyway, um, on which way to go, what to do. Um, for the most part, you are so at when you're starting a career, it's it's so overwhelming. I when I when I when I left university, I already had an agent in New York, and I had a gig. Because uh, because how do you I get went that? to McGill because well, this is the, the, these are the things these are these weird insider things that happen. I went to I first I went to Carleton. I did a fantastic music degree at Carleton. I left that place feeling really feeling educated, like legitimately feeling like they had formed a different person out of me. I, I, and then I went to McGill and I studied with Bill and Dixie Neal, who are Ben Hepner's teachers. And through them, I met Timothy Vernon, who runs Pacific Opera Victoria, but he also ran the McGill Symphony Orchestra at the time. And I was at McGill for two years, and Dixie, who used to coach at the Met, knew of an agent that she really thought would be a good fit for me. So she called her up and said, would you listen to my student? And they said, okay. And that's how that happened. I traveled to New York in the days where this agency called Dispecker Artists was used to be run by Taya Dispecker, who was still alive at the time. I traveled to New York. I went to her apartment and I sang for her and she just loved me and that was it. What did you sing? I sang Composer's Aria from Ariadne of Naxos by Richard Strauss. And I sang Una Voce Poco Fa from the Barber of Seville, Rosina. And I sang Carmen. And that was it. So at this point, what did that mean when she said, we want to... We want you to be represented by us. Or it was it was a it was a windfall. I was the youngest person on their roster. I was the only Canadian. I felt really lucky to be there because I then started to sing in the U.S. and in Canada. I debuted with the Montreal Symphony in a lot of big places really quickly, um, and I was having a tremendous time and. Then I went off and did my gig with Timothy Vernon at Pacific Opera Victoria. I debuted there with The Italian Girl in Algiers, another comedy by Rossini, and that was a big hit. And then you just keep rolling with those punches as best you can. And Sorry, before you say that, when you, when you start a new production, let's say you, you're going to yeah. go somewhere and sing a piece, how much work goes into that? Oh, God. Because <laughs> it's, it's not like you it's... Know, you and have, it depends on the role, but... I think minimum, minimum two months to get a role going. You know, if you're doing something extremely complex like a Wagner opera, a year. Wow. Oh, yeah, at least a year because the voice needs to acclimatize to what you're doing. You can't, it's not like an instrument with an external apparatus. You You can hit a piano for days and days and days. You can go for hours. Uh, you know, pianists get tendonitis and all that too. Right. But I mean, you can go for a reasonably long time. With a singer, you can only sing for a limited time every day, and you've got to learn 300 page tomes filled with little black notes. And that takes time, and your memory takes time to absorb it. Back in the day, I could, I could learn a Rossini opera in a couple of months. 
because it's it's very it's very tonal. The, there's nothing new and funky about it. You you know they all kind of sound the same. You know ex- exactly what you're getting. Um, but when I, you're learning it, are you learn you're learning it on your own first. You're learning it on your own first. God help you if you show up and it isn't ready because right. that's not the time when you show up. It's committed to memory, and ideally, you know everybody else's part as well. So when you get signed by this agent and yeah. then they start giving you gigs, like how does that work? So that's the big, that's the big, um, I don't know what even to call it. It's the smashing of the fantasy mirror because <laughs> I, what happens is you think you're going to, ha- you're going to get an agent. The agent does the work and that's just not the case. So I was really young. It was a bit intimidating to be on this New York agency. And what I know now is that what you have to do is phone these people once every two days and say, what's going on? What have you got for me? Da, 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 da. But the other thing that's an important part that is very difficult to keep pushing yourself on someone, right? right? A lot of artists have a lot of trouble with that. I'm not going to call this person every day. What if they're busy? Well, that's your job to be aggressive. The other part of your job is that it's your career. You, you need to be bringing things to the table too. It can't all be, it can't be all the agent. And so really people like someone like Pavarotti, who is the best example, you know, the phone just rings for him. So right. the agent is, but for someone like Julie Nasralla, who's newbie on the scene, who the heck has heard of her? Not too many people. So you have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And that gets exhausting. Um, and that's usually not in anyone who's a true artist. I find that's usually not in their nature. Right. Uh, so I had a lot of trouble with that. I had a lot of trouble with having to keep badgering this agent for stuff. And she loved me. It wasn't even, it wasn't even that she thought I was fantastic, but there are 80 other people demanding her attention. Uh, and you, it takes time for you to develop the muscle to go out and get things for yourself as well. It's super hard. When they tell you it's hard in school, you have no idea what that means. It's not about learning the music and getting up on stage. It's all this other stuff. How much energy do you have to keep pushing? How much energy do you have to keep learning and shoving all this music into your body? How much energy do you have to wait in airports by yourself for hours on end? And and then so if you're working on a piece and it takes you Mm -hmm. two to three months or more, how many pieces are you actually performing in a year? Like, Depends on the gig rate, like you have, and then and how fast you can learn stuff. I mean, I have a girlfriend who's having a fabulous career right now, and she's just a learning machine. And I have another girlfriend who worked as the soprano in an opera house in Austria in Innsbruck for years and years, and she learns seven or eight roles a year. That's wow. a lot of music, but that's her full time job. So, and then eventually things start to repeat. So what you yeah, do is yeah. you spend the first 10 years learning everything you're going to learn. But also I have another friend who's in his 50s who just debuted at the Met and just debuted on Broadway. And he's still learning new stuff all the time, which I think is good. It's good for your brain. It's good for your body. But there's a lot of repetition, but it also, it's chaos. It's chaos theory. It depends on what you're getting hired for and who's hiring you and what they're hiring you for. So you get this agent, they represent you, and then... They send you off somewhere. Yeah. Or before they do, they say, you got to learn this. And yeah, you, spend you months know you got to learn it. Okay. Yeah. So once you've learned it, spend two to three months, maybe more learning it, you go to this wherever. Yes. What was the first big, big performance that you did? The first performance, my debut was Pacific Opera Victoria. Okay. 
as Italian girl in Algiers, I was the Italian girl, Isabella. You're leading the cast. And you show up how you many? You show up the night before. The night before. So you're yeah. not really rehearsing with. Yes, you do. Not before oh. the show. The rehearsals will take place over a month. Okay. So you show up a month early. You sleep. You wake up. They've given you a package at the hotel. This is where you go, and this is what time you, show, you should be there. And you show up at this rehearsal hall down the street or wherever, and usually what happens is you meet everybody in the cast, the conductor's there, the pianist, the rehearsal pianist, and the rest of your cast members, and you just sing it through. I presume because of your schooling, you had some experience in this, but what was that like to be there in Vancouver and doing this for the first time? It's, it's the thrill of a lifetime. It's the thing that I want to get up and do every single day. I love rehearsing. I love process. I love learning the little black notes. I mean, that role, funnily enough, a little cute little anecdote, was I was still living in Montreal at the time, and we didn't have a piano. I was living with a friend of mine. We didn't have a piano, but he had this tiny little xylophone. You know those to- toy yeah. xylophones? Every little one is, every little slat is a different color yeah. with a little hammer with a ball, red ball that you ding, ding, ding. I learned the entirety of Italian Girl in Algiers on this little xylophone. It <laughs> showed up in Victoria. and But hey, it worked, you know, and that, that's what you did. And we didn't have money and we didn't have a piano. But that is, for me, it's the thrill of a lifetime. And then I get sad when the rehearsals are over, but then I'm... Again, it's party time because it's the premiere night, and then you get a day off in between, and maybe you'll do a five or six show run, and then you get back on the plane and go home. And usually, I feel, and I know a lot of other people feel this, this tremendous sense of withdrawal, withdrawal from, it's like going to camp. Right. You with all these people that you've been smooshed together with for a month. You have lunch together. You have dinner together. You're in the same rehearsal hall together for hours on end. And then they're just not there. But then you go to the next gig, and it's a whole new pack of people, and you do the same thing with them. <laughs> and then over the years, you you find that you keep showing up. And, oh, remember when we did that together? It's syndication. All these people, we all go into syndication, and we end up bumping into each other all over the place. How easy is it? No, it can't be easy. How difficult is it to establish a name? It's the hardest thing in the world. And I, I still believe to this day that it, the number one rule is be nice. I, I don't really think it's how amazing you are. Everybody thinks, everybody thinks they're way more amazing than they are, first of all. So I think that, that yeah, that's just, that's, I mean, we're, let's talk turkey here. Well, no, yeah, no, but, you know, but I think they this. do. Yeah. I, but I think the number one thing is be nice, be nice and be prepared. I have never in my life, I have bad dreams about it. I have nightmares about showing up and not knowing things. And I know that if I've had that dream that I probably need to get on what I'm doing because it's a little bit of an alert for me. My soul or my subconscious is going, listen here, Missy, you get those notes learned and I do it. But the showing up um, and having it memorized is just, you. that has to be done. Tell me about confidence. Tell me about confidence that you have within yourself to be able to execute this and, and how you maintain that. Confidence is, there's a certain balance. Oh, yeah, I was talking about being nice yeah, and how I kind of lost my train. Uh, but, yeah, Pause on confidence for a second, but I back to the nice. I still think that is the number one rule, and I still think that is the number one reason for hiring people. It, it's a, it's a theme that's come up many times. Yeah, 
that and, and that surprises and me. And there are actually money reasons behind that. But okay, so confidence, we can go back. So confidence is I consider myself an extremely confident person. Where does that come from? With just the right amount of humility. I think and I think that balance, if that is out of whack, then you have a problem. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I, well, I do know where it comes from. I think I think there are a bunch of things that take place. I, I don't think, like anything, it's a very complex layering of things that take place. So I'm, I feel like I'm a naturally confident person when I'm in this arena. When you put me in a different arena, gym class, forget it. Okay, so there are there are arenas in which we all feel right. more confident. But so anything I feel musical? confident. Now, yes, but no, not anything musical. Anything performance musical, yes. But if you wanted to talk about music, uh, it would it would have been a little bit harder because doing a music degree and then having a music career are two separate things. When you're doing a music when you're when you're running a music career, it's dog eat dog. You're 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 doing business. You're not talking about Beethoven and how many blah blah blah. So yes, I do, but I do feel an extreme amount of confidence that I feel like I could get up and sing anything more so now than ever. But I think it's because of that arena. That's just a natural arena for me. I am not, I'm not afraid to sing in front of 2,000 people. It doesn't do anything to me. I can't wait to sing for 2,000 people. <laughs> um, but I also have enough humility that I know that I could make a mistake at any time because that's just what happens. We're not machines and we're fallible. So I can make really dumb mistakes at any time. You can catch. Sorry, does that, it, has that happened? Of course. Of and course. And do you think most people even notice no. it? No. Okay. Because I feel confident, even I even have enough confidence to feel that if I do make the mistake, I can cover it well. I know how to cover it. But it's very rare, actually. I have to say that it... But I, and it's rare because, and this is a really great way to tie it in, because I do not mess around when it comes to learning, to learning anything. I show up completely confident that I know every single note on the page. I know what the oboes are doing. I know what the tenor is singing. I know it better than anyone in the room. And that helps when you, when you're not really sure of what you're stepping into or even not knowing what the other person is going to sing is can throw you off when you're in there and they all of a sudden sing something so you're not So when you're expecting. rehearsing you can hear everything going that's going Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. what happens when you go rehearse and the oboe isn't giving you what you thought? You have to know it anyway. You have to be also prepared for other people to drop the ball cuz they're human too. <laughs> Right? right. Uh, that, that happens a lot with orchestras because they're often getting the music at the last minute or not maybe not the last minute, but they haven't ha they haven't been looking at this for a month the way you have. So if the let's say the poor oboist, it, it doesn't really have to happen in the oboe. Well, we, as an example, no, all oboists don't at me. Um, if the oboist does drop some kind of cue, you still have to come in. Right. And, you know. Or oboist, they'll get it right the next time. The conductor will say, "Hey, you know, we'll put them in place." But so it's very, it's very stressful in that way. You, but it isn't if you know what you're doing. Okay, so when you pursue the career that you have, it's not like you say, "Hey, let's put on a show," and put on a show. Like it's 
months of preparation. It's usually a big orchestra, but it, I guess it doesn't have to be. But but yeah. usually it, it requires a lot of work. For opera, yes. Yeah. If you're just showing up to sing something with a symphony, never mind. That is, hey, let's just put on a show. And But but even that, you got to get the symphony. <laughs> you do, but you would be surprised. I think uh, most of the symphonic gigs that I have done, you show up two days before, the first day is with the pianist. So you and the piano and the conduct, you and the conduct, because that's for you and the conductor. You and the conductor, he will set the tempos that you want with the pianist because it's too expensive to bring in the orchestra right. just for that. And then the next day, you will run it once, maybe twice, and then there's a dress rehearsal the day of the performance, which is another challenge, and then you sing it. There isn't a lot of time. Okay, so if we go back to the point where you were in a rock band, or ah, pop band, okay? It was so fleeting, yeah. Anyway, okay, yeah. but tell me the different approach that you might have taken between performing in a pop band versus performing classical music. Well, it's a much more relaxed environment, clearly, but I still was painstakingly um, demanding of myself. I think that's personality, too. Mm -hmm. I won't let anything go until it's exactly the way it has to go. And then I give up. In the performance, I will give up to whatever the performance, you know, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have to at some times, you know, at some point you got to release all that. But the rock band was, it was not um, a, a long time thing. We tried for a couple of summers, I think. Typical. Uh, but it was easy. Rob would teach me the song in his kitchen over a pot of coffee. We would suck, oh my God, how much coffee we drank. And he would <laughs> sing it. He would just sing it to me, and I would sing it back. Was there a goal with this Yes, band? there was a goal, because at the time, uh, the rock station in Ottawa, Shea 106, still exists, um, was having a contest for new rock bands, and we had to make a recording. And it got whittled down to whatever. But one of the best parts was that every person who entered the contest got their little tune on the radio, oh, played okay. on the radio. So I, we heard my tune. It was my high school grad. I was in the limo, you know, going to the grad with wow. my corsage and my date and everybody else in the grad. And it was like, guys, guys, our song came on in the limo when we were going to our grad. And I remember just, we just had the best time. So we did, we got together to do this. But then after high school, you know, that one went to this university. I went here and right there, and it just it didn't happen. If anything could have happened, would you have pursued that? Or there's no I don't way? know. I don't know. I really loved what I was doing by then. I, I, by this point, I, I had been taking voice lessons with Mrs. Ross since I was 12 years old, and I was doing it in high school. It was covert ops. Like, I never told people. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want anyone to know. You know, you're just a kid. I don't want people to know I'm taking classical lessons, but, but I was into it. And uh, I did Kiwanis every year, and, and I performed as much as I could because she made us get up and sing. And... I don't know if I would have done it. You know, I actually, I don't think I would have. I have this other memory that just popped in my head. And my cousin, I have a cousin. I have a lot of cousins. I'm Lebanese. But I have a cousin who's, who is a rocker too. And I remember him asking me to join his band. And he called me and I was just like, 
I don't know, man. I don't know. And he reminded me of that phone call just a little while ago. I ran into him in the gym and he reminded me, he said, remember when I called you and I asked you to be in our rock band? I said, no. And he said, you kept going. I don't know. Because cause you knew, you knew down deep inside it wasn't your gig. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I would have. Um, I've heard you sing classical music, but I've never heard you sing rock music. What would your voice sound like? It's, it's a very good question. So rock music sits in a different area of the voice. It's, it sits way down here where you talk. So I could belt it out, no problem. But the funny, the ironic thing is that at this moment, uh, a girlfriend of mine, her name is Parv, Parvane Eschke. She's a fantastic pianist in Ottawa. We were talking on the phone one night and I, we were talking about this. We were talking about rock tunes and how... Basically, I just wanted to be a rock star, but with a classical edge. And and this has existed before, but they didn't succeed. It was a duo called Duo Dolly Deluxe, and they were classically trained. But a lot of these gals are classically trained. Mm-hmm. Pat Benatar, Annie Lennox. Anyway, so I was talking to Parv, and I said, I've always had, I wanted to do crossover stuff, but I don't like it when opera singers, I shouldn't say I don't like it. Some people do it really successfully, but I... It's not that I don't like it. I just think it's already done. That Opera singers, when they do crossover, they change their voices right. to suit the crossover. I said to Parv, wouldn't it be cool to do a version of Stairway to Heaven but sing it operatically? I think it would bring a new... It would just shed a new light on this somehow. It would bring so many textures and layers. And so we made a video of it and we put it on YouTube. And so it's out there right now. It's about a week old. We just we just put it. We're wearing these sequin dresses, and I am just singing "Stairway to Heaven" with a full-throated classical really? sound, and she's playing the hell out of the piano, and people are just going crazy for it. And so now we have plans to do "Journey" and "Queen," and uh, we I'm basically going to cover all these rock tunes with a classical sound because. As you said before, it is just liberating. Mm-hmm. It's a ton of fun. It's something different. And I feel like, why not? But when you're at home and you decide that you want to listen to Van Morrison or Journey or whoever, and you sing along, how are you singing along with it? I don't I don't know because it's so natural. I just kinda I don't I don't go, you know, oh I don't use the yeah. the but I, I just let it go. Uh it's so, it's such a, it's the way anyone would do it in their car. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, shot my trigger, now he's dead. You know, I just let it kind of go like that. I, it doesn't occur to me to produce the operatic sound. That is a conscious thing. That isn't just something that comes out. So when I'm in the car and I'm singing that, that's how I would do it. Producing the operatic sound is really, you have to, it's a very conscious endeavor. Let's stand, take that breath, produce that sound, and away we go. Right. Right. Okay, so. So I'm just like anybody else in that other way. But I can see, like like the cello players who do ACDC or whatever, yeah. they get a lot of views. Yeah. Like if you did this, and obviously you're seeing some results of the steroid to heaven and, and then the amount of views, like. Would it bother you if, if all of a sudden somebody says, okay, you need to record an album of these songs, and that does really well? Would it bother me? This is well, what I'm like... hoping for. <laughs> I'm hoping for this. This is what I want. I think this would be 
amazing in a small nightclub in Vegas, for example, or I am not a snob. I love classical music. I, it, it, but th- that's the thing. It, it is, I didn't know anything about it. You can just love it. You don't have to know stuff. You can, you can just listen and listen to the layers and that feeds a facet of my soul. But then I listen to Van Morrison and there's something about his voice that feels like home to me. And I just don't know what it is. I traveled to Ireland, Northern Ireland, just to see him by myself. And there's that facet of it. And then there's Jimi Hendrix that does a whole other thing to me. But then there's like George Michael, who is also a fantastic singer. But then you know what I was listening to on the way to work? Tiffany, I think we're alone now because it reminds me of high school. So there's this nostalgia attached to it. But also it's just a great little pop tune. And so is... um, uh, that tune by the Go-Go's, We Got the Beat. They're fantastic pop tunes, mm-hmm. and they're fantastic for a reason. It's great music. So all these things feed and nurture different parts of who I am anyway. Okay, so one of the other things that you do is Carmen on Top. Tell yes. me about that. So um, about 10 years ago, it was almost 10 years ago, it was 2010, I was doing the radio show. I was live. We were live. And my friend, Adam, who was on the board, the Long Symphony was playing. And he came through and he said, I've just been looking around. And I've seen that a troupe in London, England has produced Carmen in a pub. Isn't that cool? Because he knows that it's my role. And I went, yeah, that's really cool. So my immediate thought was, I can do that. And I know I can do it better. And that night, I went out with a couple of girlfriends, and I told them about it, and they said, well, why don't we just do this? And I said, let's just do it. And so we did it. Exactly your, girls, let's just put on a show. That's what we did. It was like Spanky and the Rascals. It was like, let's put on a show in the barn, and that's what we did. Oh, my God, do I wish there were cameras on us that whole time. It would have made for the best reality show. There was so much stuff that happened and people that got involved and people we had to get rid of and bad behavior and you know when you're when you don't know what you're doing you're just yeah making your way you're going day by day and I had to raise all this money which I did and the show happened and I got sick but it was I made it through like it was so much drama oh my goodness but the the fact is we'd only planned on doing two shows then we did we sold out so quickly we had to add two more which also sold out in 15 minutes so basically carmen on tap is georges bizet's carmen as dinner theater and we perform it in a small club in ottawa at the time it's not doesn't even exist anymore so it's it's makes me so sad it's called it was called the velvet room and we used to pack that place we could hold 100 people comfortably we would smush 120 in there People are just jammed up against each other. It's all banquet seating, and this opera will unfold right before your eyes, but like close, like you could you could reach out and touch the sweat on my back if you wanted to. And it gives people this, not even a bird's eye view, a very close view of what it takes when you're singing, you're, you're sweating, the spit is flying, you and the tenor are making out like mad. There's this, there's a sex scene, there's a rape scene, there's a... Uh, violence, there's this, there's that. I mean, it was just people were going crazy. We had ladies holding their dinner napkins up to their faces, not to look at the action when it wasn't pleasant, and people going, ah, and gasping, and, and, and us involving them. And it, I can't even begin to describe how exhilarating this experience is. And, and for 
the people coming to see it too. And so every year I put it on in Ottawa and then I moved here and had to transfer it here. So I did. I, I got in touch with the the gang at Lula Lounge on Dundas West. They have a piano. The place looks like Carmen's Den. And we've been doing it there since 2013. I'm doing it again this year. And it that's just it. It's part of this trend where people are producing classical music in unusual places. And it's it's been going on for 10 or 15 years, more than that, about 15, 20 years now, slowly. But now it's become normalized. Tell, but, tell me about, you said it's it's my role. Tell me how it became your role. Oh, my gosh. You're asking all the big questions. <laughs> um, I, I, I describe it in a way that when you're, if you're looking at an actor doing a role that becomes synonymous with them, like if they, what's a good, I, good, I'm at a loss for an example right now, but when someone on the big screen is playing a part that is so them that you blur the line that mm-hmm. that line gets blurred then I think the reason one of the reasons is because they're probably really like that that's probably an easy right. thing for them and that's how I feel about Carmen did you know was it like the first time you played it or was it the first time you heard it? the first my mom went to see it I can't remember whether it was at the actual... I don't think it was the actual opera. I think they were showing the movie. There are a few movies made. And she came home and looked at me and she said, Kid, you are Carmen. And I went, I had no idea what that meant at the time. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or bad. I know. (laughs) But I didn't know what it meant because I hadn't seen it. I hadn't been exposed to it yet. But then in university, we were shown a video of a production of Carmen at the Met and it was the same feeling I had as a four-year-old in front of the TV, the 10-year-old getting their piano for the first time, and then I had it again when I saw Carmen. I was like, this person is me. This is me. And and I'm talking philosophically, mm-hmm. uh, but also temperamentally. Okay, so Carmen is a gypsy. She runs contraband. She's not the most honest person. Okay, so I'm not a criminal, but the fundamental core of her is that her number one prized possession is freedom, personal freedom. And holy Hannah, that is my number one. I mean, I am nine years old, and I've never been married, and I've never had children, and there is a reason. Because freedom for me is the be-all, end-all. Like, I, I just, I, it's cliched, but you can't tie me down, man. You, I mean, you can't tie me down. And... That the that aspect of her and that aspect of coming out and just loving whoever she wants and then when that's over it's just over is exactly how I am. I, I don't and I don't feel there's any there's any I mean at the time Carmen was this character who appeared on the stages of Paris and everybody went bananas. Like how could this gypsy girl be the the star of a show how could that kind of character be the lead and over time she's just become this person that you love and you should be sad at the end ah spoiler alert but <laughs> I won't give it totally away but she embodies for me this utter lust for freedom and this I don't know if it's a fear but I, I like to play her with a little bit of fear of being too much in love 
because she might lose her freedom if she falls too much in love with somebody. And there is that play that I have in me too. And everything about her in that philosophical way, in that temperamental way, is pretty much who I am. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think that has also been a reason, you know, I mentioned I'm not getting married. I, I, but, you know, no one's ever asked either. And I, I think there is that kind of like, are you a wild child? Like, are you that person? Of course not. A little bit, but, but she, I, she would be the enhanced theatrical version of me. And the exaggerated you, version. And yeah. when you play it? Oh my God. I mean, I have gone through so many transitions. I started singing Carmen in 2003 and I'm nowhere near the same Carmen. You can't help how old you are, first of all. So when you first do it, you're just, when I first did it was, I did it with Opera Saskatoon Opera. It was fantastic. It was the first time. It was a great place to try it out. And I was just thrilled to be doing it. Not that I didn't act it and and do all the things, but you know, part of you is just like, oh my God, this is happening. Okay. And then I had a really fascinating production in upstate New York. Uh, a pretty small company up there. And they had some of the best people working for them. And the director for that company gave me so much. He said, listen, you don't have to do, these are his words, you don't have to do a goddamn thing as Carmen. You could just stand there and they will come to you and this will be fine. Just stand there and sing it. I don't want you to do that. But if that's what we had to do, that's the kind of power this role has with you. And I was just blown away by this. And I can't remember his name. It's so sad. Um, but I'll never forget him because he gave me this this kind of, other direction to take her in and ever since then I've been uh, uh, what's the word growing on that or building on that and of course you start changing that's the this is what I always say to people it's not so much that the music changes but you change the music doesn't change the the fascinating aspect of art is that I'm changing and doing this music again so the next time I do it it's got this And the next time I do it, you know, two months prior, I had my heart kicked open by some Irish guy and I cried in the shower for six months. And so it informed the next time I sang, you know, this is what happens. Have you ever doubted your musical ability or the the path that you've chosen? No. Well, because it can't be easy. No, it's awful. (laughs) It's awful. It's horrible. If you can do something else, do it. You can't. If you can, you should. I can't. I really can't uh, because it's. It takes up everything. It takes up everything. It takes all your money. It takes all your life. It takes all your time and all your energy. You don't turn. There's no going home and watching the Big Bang. You don't turn it off. There's no going home and watching TV and that was over. Okay. No. 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 This is an on. Good. This is not for the lighthearted. <laughs> And I, you know, I love staying in hotels. I don't, I don't, I love it all. Like there's not, I love it. I would never doubt it. I was, made no money for a really long time and I just kept going and no one ever told me, hey, do you think you should maybe think about doing something? No one ever said that to me in the entirety of my life. It was so, it was so very clear. This is what Julie has to do. This is like, this is, this is a life source and 
this is going to happen until I drop dead. This is going to keep going until I drop dead, <laughs> until it kills me. It's that Charles Bukowski quote, quote, find something you love and let it kill you. And that's basically what I'm letting it do. The other thing you do is you host a radio show on CBC. Tell me how that happened. Is that something you seeked out or they come to you? This is such a crazy banana story. It, it really... I, if I were to write a book, I really don't think I'm that interesting. But I think this story is interesting because I almost flushed the whole thing in the trash of my email. <laughs> so I was, I was moving to Vienna. And Career. like really, like I was moving to Vienna. I had gotten a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts to go and learn four roles at the Vienna State Open opera with a an American coach who's been living in Vienna for 30 years and coaching there and so I was out of here man I was like you know yeah sure I would come back but I what I was hoping to do was go there sing for people never come back just to see my mom but really start building things over there sorry is that important to build in Europe like what's the difference between North America and Europe I think it depends depends what your path is at, at at for me I wanted to explore what was going on over there just because there's more stuff right. and the market is bigger. The market is very small here. Um, and I wanted to learn, and I had met that coach on a, it. it, it so there's a whole other story about going to Paris for the first time and meeting him by accident. And so it also, it, it also includes the coach that I really adored and thought, oh, this is where I should come and do stuff. And, and I did. And it was, so there was this, anyway, I'll get to it. There was a crisis. So I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to go now to do this. And I am in New York City for whatever reason. I think I was auditioning. And it was back in the day where you still had to check your email at a, an internet cafe. So I went in and I'm checking my email and I get this email and I looks like spam. So I ditch it. And I don't put it in the spam folder. I actually put it in the trash. I just trash it. Then I go back to Ottawa. I'm getting ready to pack. I'm staying at my mom's the day in the days before I'm leaving. And, and I think to myself, I should probably look at that. So I look at that email. I take it out of the trash. And the reason it compelled me was because the name on the email was Daniel Weinzweig. The name Weinzweig is the name of a prominent Canadian composer. John Weinzweig. And I thought, well, how many of these guys are around, right? He's got to be related. So I read the email and it says a CBC, he's a headhunter. And it says a CBC is contact, would like to contact you about just, you know, the preliminary stages of a, an interview for a radio show. It doesn't say what, where, how long. I thought, what? Where the heck did this come from, right? So I call the guy. And I lead with, listen, are you related to John Weinzweig? He goes, yes, I'm his son. And I said, oh, my God, I've sung your father's music. And we just clicked. Like, there was this ching. And then all of a sudden, this weird little switch I never thought I had went on. And he asked me questions about music. And I just started answering them in this way. Like, what kind of questions? Ah, God, I can't remember. It was like, what do you listen to? What do you like? What do you... Basically, the way I'm, I'm talking to you now, I'm, okay, you know, I'm not, not a snob, and I, I like this, and I like that, and this is, but I love this, and I also love that, and these are the reasons I love these things. And I said, look, I'm going to Vienna in 72 hours. He said, don't worry, just go. Go. We'll call you later. Next day, calls me again. 
Hi. Hi. So I just want you to know that the show they're looking for, it's a five-hour live national classical show. I said, what? But I don't, I'm not a broadcast person. Like, I waitered, and then I sang, and that's all I know how to do. <laughs> and he said, no, no, don't worry about it. Just go to Vienna. It's going to be fine. I said, well, I'm leaving for Vienna in 48 hours. He calls me again the next day. He goes, just go to Vienna. So I go to Vienna. I'm literally putting my clothes in the cupboard. I've just arrived. I'm unpacking, and the phone rings in my flat. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? I pick up the phone, fully expecting it to be someone speaking German to me. It's going to be a wrong number. And it's a man from CBC saying, we would like you to come and do a screen what I guess would be the equivalent of a screen test or an audition. And I said, well, I just got here. And uh, can I come in three weeks? Like, I've got to wait for my piano. And they said, sure, no problem. So they sent me, the the time came around, they sent me five pieces of music and said, write a show. I went, "Uh, okay, no no guidelines. And I wrote pages. Like not knowing, right? No clue, man. I was just like writing pages and pages. Really like. Okay, but this is something you can write off the top of your head. No, no, I'm researching. So in my brain, I'm thinking, so I've got my laptop and I'm going, okay, so what would be a cool story to tell about Beethoven? Well, I found this article where they were treating patients with depression using Beethoven, Beethoven's music. I thought, oh, that'd be cool to talk about, right? And then I would go to, anyway, I filled out this thing. I took my score of 10 pages Uh, for these five pieces of music I wrote tomes for each and I came to Toronto and I I wanted to see because because I'd never had a real job I didn't think I'd get it I just wanted to see how far I would get so uh, you come in you do the test and they coach you a little they say you know take this a little bit of that a little bit of this okay now say this and say your name in the show and so I made up a name I called it the classical countdown and that so they let me go, and I'm relieved. I'm relieved that it's over because I, this has all been very stressful, and I, I, I don't understand. Like I don't, yeah. Do you know how how they came about to no, pick you? No, not at this point. I found out much later. So I'm in the hotel room. I'm I'm getting packing again, and they call me and they say you've been shortlisted. And I, every step of the way, I just can't believe it. It's 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 crazy to me. So they send me eight more piece, pieces and say, write a show. Well, now I know what they want. So I give them what they want. I'm a musician. You give, you give the bosses what they want. So I write the show and I go in again and I do it again. And they go, thank you very much. And I go back to Vienna and I think, that's it. Well, two or three months later, I get this phone call with them telling me I got the job. And I just... I was gobsmacked. I actually, I didn't even know the guy on the phone was my boss at the time, and I didn't know it. I said, are you guys crazy? <laughs> Why? Like, what are you, are you sure you guys know what you're doing over there? And he said, oh, we're very serious. So I thought, listen, if these people can see something in me that I can't see, this is never going to happen to me again. This but is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But where are you? Are you still in Vienna? I'm in Vienna, okay. freaking out. And are you thinking... The original plan of being coached and maybe you have opportunities coming up in Yes, in so all that had been going on. So at the time, before they gave me this phone call, before getting the phone call from CBC, I had had two major auditions for two really big conductors out there, one of whom wanted to hear me again. 
uh, on the big stage when there wasn't a performance happening. And he was like, who is this girl? Why isn't she singing Carmen all over the world? And I need to hear her again. And another was for the guy who had just taken over Paris Opera. And things were looking really amazing. And so I just told my agent, you know, and the CBC was just a year gig. I said, look, here's what's happening. And it's a year. So this is still can happen. I anything, you know, this is just a year. So let's do this for a year. Maybe maybe the CBC won't like me. You know, maybe but they'll let me go. But you're willing to go that way. I was willing to go that way because you can be anywhere in the world now. Right. You know, you can be anywhere in the world. If if the guy running uh, the Vienna Radio Philharmonic thinks I'm good and he wants me back, I'll I'll go back. Like I have vacation time. I can take a week and go. Right. So I came back and I did this for a year, and they liked me. How did it feel to you? It was terrifying. It was terrifying. It's nothing like being on stage. No. It's a whole different set of muscles. It is vocational. You have to love radio to do it. You have to be that person who's passionate about, let's go out there and make another day. This was extremely stressful. The two shows they had canceled were beloved. They'd been on the air for years. The hosts were let go. They were beloved. Well, no, one of them had remained but was given a very small show. Uh, half-hour show, and people were furious because now CBC was presenting pop music, and they were, had cut the all-day class. It was all classical, and I was the face of it. And I remember one critic in in a newspaper critic, music critic, who wrote for a pa- paper who I won't mention any names, but he called me a once-promising mezzo-soprano. He really laid it in and criticized, just thought I'd done it. A shit job and and I probably had I don't know it's your first time and it's live and it's national and it's five hours long and you're new yeah, yeah. and it's really scary but I look back on it now and I think holy chutzpah like I, I did a pretty good job for someone who was a noob a newbie you know yeah, and yeah. you learn and there's that's the only way to learn and I had a, a good bunch of people behind me who were helping me and and making me sound good and was making it, sure I didn't say stupid things. and How big was radio as you were growing up? Like, what connection did you have with radio? I basically had a, you know, listen to pop radio as right. a kid. That's it. And most of the time I was practicing or off doing something else. Like, I, you know, we watched TV and all that stuff, Carol Burnett on yeah. Saturday nights and all that. But radio you listen to, and it wasn't a huge force in my life. CBC I would listen to in my bed at night, and I liked um, the jazz later on. I liked the sound of his voice. Um, but during the day, no, you're doing other things. You, I have to learn my music. I'm doing this, and I have to do... It just wasn't a thing. When, when did it become comfortable to you? Now. Now I think it's more comfortable Really? I think it, I, yeah, because I, it, this kind of thing, it takes a really long, it's a really long time to develop. I really, there is this feeling that I really don't understand why anyone cares about what I think about this piece, what, what I think when it comes to this music or what I, and really it shouldn't be about what I think anyway, but it's more about storytelling what I do. So mm-hmm. I, I look for a very human story. It's not about, 
I don't tell stories about myself. I don't even talk about myself. In fact, I don't refer to myself. I don't say I or me or anything ever, ever, ever. I focus all my love and attention on the people who are listening. And I talk, try to bring really human stories about these people who are geniuses who actually had a lot of problems and a lot of pets and a lot of heartbreak, but a lot of love and a lot of fault and a lot of debt and the same things we all grapple with. Nothing has changed. And I like that kind of, that kind of talk. But when I listen to you and I think, my God, she puts so much work into this. Yeah, I do. Like it, it comes through. Like yes. Oh, yes. Like the research that you do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love telling those stories. You know, doing live radio is terrifying, but telling those stories is 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 a wonderful thing. So it's, can I ask? You do so. It's nine to one right now. It's right? nine to one so every day. Nine thirty Newfoundland. Yeah, they <laughs> took an think. hour away from me. Eventually, it was it went from five to four hours. So how much work goes into a four hour show? That's a lot of work. It's it's so I I will program the music. And then I will... Is that an easy thing for you? It takes a couple hours. It takes a couple hours. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's a labor I like. Again, it's process. I like the process. I like making that puzzle fit and getting the right amount of CanCon and the right amount of international and the right amount of this and the right amount of... It, it, is, it is curated by a full-blooded human being here on the other side, just so you know. There's math involved, and there's texture, and there is, okay, we're starting off big, and now we're going to do another medium big, and then we're going to take a little breather, and then we're going to bring it slowly back up again, and then, ah, end with, end with fireworks or not. And so there is this really curative process that take, goes on in my brain. And then I have to do a couple of turns they call them where I'm talking about you know here's how you can find us and here's how you can but I even try to make those more more fun like you know if you if you need to walk the dog and you're afraid of misses, missing something not that that's a super fun thing but you know not just like a bland kind of go here find this um, and then I'll try to find really interesting little stories about the people involved in making these pieces mm-hmm about how Dvorak's grandmother used to call him Toothy, my little Toothy, because he had this gorgeous set of teeth. Who had nice teeth back in the day? Nobody went to the dentist, but, you know, things like that. Or how he loved this plum pudding, or how, what James Ennis would take with him on a deserted island, or what it felt like when he got his first violin for Christmas when he was three or whatever. Do you get a lot of feedback from your audience? I do. I get a lot of love. I think it's really really lovely. I think I'm really lucky. People will always take time out of their day to tell you what you did wrong, but I have a lot of people taking time out of their day to tell me what I'm doing right. And plus, when I go to sing, invariably there will be a set of people in the audience who haven't looked me up on the internet, which I just love. And they're just like, we just want to come and see what you look like. And to see if you were the same person, I'm like, what you see is what you get. This person here it's like it's what you get and so when I go to sing places and people come to talk to me about the show they're just people who love it you're just keeping people company I'm not here to lecture them it's not a recital hall and it's not a lecture hall 
It's about keeping people company with some informative and entertaining bits of history that they can relate to. Knowing what you know about the business, knowing that you know being a presenter of classical music as well as a performer of classical music, how do you feel about the state of classical music? I think it's fantastic. I think all that other that talk about it being dead is malarkey. I love that word. Um, yeah. I, I don't agree that it's dying. I think that more and more with the advent of being able to hear anything you want at any time has done wonders. People are listening to everything. The people that come out to the symphonies, the symphonies are packed. I, I, I don't see the problem. I, I, I get that the bigger places are struggling, but I just think that the new wave of these smaller rogue opera companies like Carmen Atap, like Against the Grain Theatre here in Toronto, like all these 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 companies that are going rogue and doing their own thing, that is what it's all about. You have to take it to people, show them what's great about it, and just say, hey, I listen to Zeppelin too. You know, I like drinking beer and nachos too after the gig. So like, you know, let's get real here, people. Um, I I don't think it's, it's in danger. And I think when you ask any of the big soloists uh, across the planet if it's in danger, they'll all say no. It, it feels like it's thriving, and I feel like the bigger companies are trying to catch up. They're doing whatever they can to get bums in seats. Heck, I think even the um, the symphony, some symphony houses in the states. I think I think uh, Colorado is one of them, I, but don't quote me on it. They uh, they have a tweeting section because they know people don't want to let down their phones down, so they have a tweeting section where people who are going to tweet about it, they go in and they tweet about it. Wow. Um, and I think it really helps to, it, it, it is now de rigueur to talk to your audience as a soloist, to get them in the picture, to put them in the picture, which is what I do on the radio, which is what I do when I perform. Because I, I was just in Whitehorse and the person who hired me there said, you just did 30 minutes of art song and you had people eating out of your hand. And because I tell the story of what's happening, it's about a wedding it's about the guy in town who thinks he's the hot guy in town. It's about ladies talking about the beautiful blonde guy who, like, it's all just life <clears throat> in this package. And as soon as you start talking like that about it, people are like, well, I can get into that. No, we're all, like, what's, what's, we're, there's no barrier. And I think anyone who, who, the snobbery levels have come down. They have come right down. Is it difficult to maintain your career as an artist? No. And do the radio? No. I my my first half joking line is I'm not married and I don't have kids, so I have time. But also people make time for the things they want to do and there's no way in this world that I'm going to stop singing and I just make time for it. So I come in and I find because I've been immersed in radio and the stories of all these people and listening to the symphonic music, not singers, but symphonic music, I have become an enriched singer because of it. It has changed my, it has changed my life. Getting, being here at the CBC has changed my life in so many good ways that I, I can't, I'm actually so grateful and so speechless. I, I, I find myself thinking, well, thank God I said yes. Thank God I did not 
torch that email because they're, I, I described it to a colleague today as a figure eight. They're just feeding each other so beautifully right now. And I find I have more energy than I ever had. I have more curiosity than I ever had. I have more, I don't know, even curiosity and energy are pretty big. <laughs> I, I, I'm very happy to be doing all the things I'm doing. And I, 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 life's short. I just go do everything. Mm-hmm. Go do everything. You want to do a Zeppelin video? I'm doing the Zeppelin video. You want to put on Carmen in a pub? Go do the Carmen pub. You know, you want to go and I did a jazz fest gig once. I went, I was, ter- I was terrified. That's a thing. I am scared. That's the thing. I am, I do get scared. Not often, but I do get scared, but I do it anyway. And then I go, oh, yeah, that was scary. Okay, good for me. I did it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Then I I have a large Cabernet and it's okay, you know. But um, that's the thing. I think people think there is fear, but I, I, I do it in spite of myself. What's the greatest thing you've learned from this job? That's a huge question. I think the greatest thing I've learned from this job is... It, and in a weird way, it kind of is a metaphor for life because it teaches you just how much to give, just how much not to say, just how much to feel. That's, that's complicated because you can feel big, but how to express feeling. Talking about music is something that a very large number of people have, are not gifted <laughs> with how do you talk about music how do you go beyond saying something is beautiful you know or something is nice shoot me I think it has given me this gift of like now I I really feel that I am I have an encyclopedic knowledge of course there are people who know more who know more but it's just because I've been doing it for 10 years and all this stuff keeps coming back into my brain it's repetition right and you could do if you did it but I have this this vast more vast knowledge than I ha- have ever had. And I have this, this internal instinct about how much to give and how much not to give and how to create suspense and how to create delight, and really how to tell a great story. Well, you do that. And, and I have to say, and you know this, um, when I started this podcast, one of, the, one of the 10 people I wanted to talk to was you. So now- God knows why. <laughs> Blah blah. Now you regret it. She hasn't shut up for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 it's happened, and I don't regret it at all. I really appreciate you doing this because I know you're really busy. The fact that you're actually doing this is like huge thrill to me. So thank you so much for doing this. You are a pure delight, and thank you for your magisterial patience. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.